Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you and we have your numbers. That lingering sense of fleas remains and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. Coming up today, we're speaking to Labour MP Neil Coyle, just back from Ukraine, and Tony Brenton, former British ambassador to Russia. But first, Boris Johnson faces the most critical week of his premiership as he braces for the outcome of an investigation that could lead to his own colleagues ousting him. Adding fuel to the fire, allegations are mounting over the conduct of his whips, with MP Nusrat Ghani claiming that she was fired as a minister in 2020, partly because of her Muslim faith. Several Tories rallied round her, including the Education Secretary, Nadeem Zahawi. This is a serious uh, allegation. It, you know, it takes someone a lot to make such a claim. I think it's important that Nuz has allowed uh, the ability to put her uh, case forward, put the evidence forward to the Cabinet Office. Well, the Prime Minister has asked the Cabinet Office to carry out an inquiry into the allegations of Islamophobia. As for the Sue Gray report, the Times reports we could get the findings tomorrow. The paper also says there's been ongoing dialogue between Gray and the police about the alleged rule-breaking. But it's still uncertain how harsh the report will be or, indeed, how much will actually be revealed to the public. Well, joining us now is Neil Coyle, Labour MP for Bermondsey and Old Southwark. Neil is also a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Neil, I want to get on to the wider conflict in Ukraine in a moment. But here at home, Sue Gray, what do you expect from that report? How much of it do you think might be in the public domain? We're not expecting the full report to be in the public domain, sadly. I think it should be. And I think that inevitably people will immediately turn to what hasn't been revealed. But, I mean, let's not lose sight of the fact the Prime Minister said there were absolutely no parties at the start of this. Uh, Then he called for the uh, investigation into them. The person he appointed had attended one of those parties. And then he admitted having been at one of the parties himself. So they've had to replace the investigation chair. And we have a Prime Minister on record as having attended one of the parties that initially he tried to pretend had never happened. So, uh, The fact that Gray has interviewed serving Metropolitan Police officers when the Met refused to investigate itself, uh, the allegations, is absolutely shocking and has left constituents and others uh, asking the question about, well, why why didn't the Met investigate and what happens next? Because I, I do think we will see a police investigation following whatever is published tomorrow, if it does indeed come out tomorrow. Should officials who attended those parties, if they are proved, should they resign, either civil service or within government? 
I think I think that would lead to an intense cull of civil servants and political appointees in Downing Street. But ultimately, responsibility lies with the Prime Minister. He allowed this to happen. It was his officials who took the decision to have it. There's no way he didn't know, given the volume of parties. And, of course, there are further allegations pending about the use of the flat and checkers and other things. So the culture of irresponsibility, rule-breaking, lies with the Prime Minister, which, of course is a factor behind his reluctance to dismiss Dominic Cummings when he broke the rules or Matt Hancock when he broke the rules. You know, he was doing it himself, so he could never impose the rules on anyone else. And, and, and ultimately, responsibility lies right at the top. Is there a problem with the way that we investigate these things? We'll see what the report says uh, in the next couple of days. But we spoke to the Institute for Government uh, last week and they said they're deeply concerned with how wrongdoing is investigated and the system is not fit for purpose is what they they told us. Do Do you agree with that? A hundred percent. And we've seen this for several years now. I think the code of conduct for... Uh, you know, probity in, in our elected representatives, but especially in ministers, has to change. We cannot have a Home Secretary found guilty of bullying and breach of the ministerial code allowed to stay on because the Prime Minister refuses to, to get rid of them. We cannot have uh, deceit of the public or lies. We're not allowed to call it lies in the Commons, but well, here I can. And we can't have routine uh, lies at the dispatch box that are so easily uh, disproved and then still have ministers carry on in office. We absolutely have to have a different system for how ministers are held to account when they break the rules. The rules are there for a reason, and we got to those rules Mm. uh, after all of the sleaze of the 90s that we thought was behind us. It's come back with a vengeance under Johnson, and I'm afraid the current system... uh, I'm glad Keir Starmer and the Labour Party are committed to overhauling it if we win the next election. it's It's an embarrassment. Okay, but on Islamophobia, Labour lost votes and the votes of many Jewish people at the last election over anti-Semitism. So what's your advice to the government now accused of Islamophobia? Well, uh, firstly, I mean, I think the way uh, this guy appears to have been treated is is really shameful. And it's all very well for the Prime Minister to say today that he takes it very seriously. He's asked for another Cabinet Office investigation into himself and his team. But... You know, he had the chance to investigate this. They had a meeting after she was dismissed from his from government. So there is, is, is uh, I just think, a distortion that he really cares. He's just trying to get through another crisis for his government. I think that the, you know, the, the situation for the Labour Party, I, I'm proud of my own track record in speaking out against what was going on in the Labour Party. I was threatened by... You know, Len McCluskey at Unite with being held to account and being uh, deselected and all the rest of it. But I knew I had to stand up for the values of the Labour Party and my own values in doing that. So I would urge Conservative colleagues to do the same. They know what's in the best interest party. They know they can lose the trust of voters. I think they, sadly, under this leadership, they, they already have, well, not sadly for me in a political context, but sadly for our political system and our democracy, they've already lost the trust of many voters over the conduct of the Prime Minister. They have a chance to uh, get through that. But to be honest, okay. because of the delay between when this happened and now, I know the Cabinet Office is investigating, but I suspect this will now uh, unravel slightly and we will see, and it's probably healthy that the Equality and Human Rights Commission investigate the Conservative Party because if this was happening with a uh, you know a member a, a minister, imagine what's happening at the local party level and with councillors and on the campaign trail because you'll find much more open hostility and discrimination at that, that level than perhaps at the top of government. 
Okay, Neil, I want to move on. You're just back from a, a visit to Ukraine. What, what was the mood like amongst the people you spoke to? Are Ukrainians uh, expecting a, a war? Are they expecting war imminently? Well, the, actually, I mean, we met with a range of uh, the Ukrainian Deputy Prime Minister and, and a range of MPs and, and, and the civil organisations and military leaders. They actually uh, don't like the way we phrase this in our uh, narrative because they don't see this as about to become a war. They think they've been at war. Don't forget, you know, Russia has already uh, annexed Crimea and is occupying uh, uh, Ukrainian territory. So the the whole framing of the debate has become almost uh, Russia-friendly because Russia wants to talk about this in the current context when actually Ukrainians are fighting for their country back from the start point of eight years ago when this all began. So do you worry that Britain and the West are powerless? I mean, powerless in terms of the narrative, but also in terms of, of a of a potential for a hot war, uh, powerless to stop Russia doing actually what it wants to do, which it's done in Crimea. Well, yeah, and, and, and in terms of hot war, I mean, I think it's important to flag up that, the you know, in, in, since the new year, uh, Russian-supported uh, snipers and shelling has uh, killed, I think, three uh, Ukrainian soldiers in, in uh, the Donetsk region in particular. So... There were 128 shellings in December. These are meant to be, these are in breach of the Minsk Agreement. And we don't see sufficient, in my opinion, we don't see sufficient international condemnation and action against Russia. The Ukrainian government is begging for greater sanctions now to try and uh, calm things and resolve the situation and force Russia to recognise it is Russia that is in breach of international uh, agreements, including the very settlement that established uh, the Ukrainian decommission of their nuclear arsenal back in 1994. You know, that wouldn't have happened if Russia hadn't agreed to borders, which Russia has now reneged on. Well, isn't, the danger that, reneged on. isn't the danger that if we use the sanctions now, we've kind of, we've, we've used all, all, our, all our threats and there's nothing left if Russia to, were to actually go into no. the east of Ukraine? No, I don't think so, because there are, there are always further sanctions. And, and to be frank, you know, uh, I think the... The, the Russian money in the UK, and in particular it connected to Conservative Party, is one of the barriers to implementing some of the Russia report recommendations. We need to get to the bottom of Russian disinformation and activity in the UK. We know there's been you know, Salisbury and other attacks on UK soil, but we've never got to the bottom of Russian interference in, for example, the Scottish referendum, EU referendum, or elsewhere. We need to do some of that to look at ourselves, our own democracy, but we also need to be supporting greater international action. And as far as what happens next, I think we'll see, or twofold, we'll see other European countries stiffen in their resolve against Russia, and Putin could actually uh, be leading to the expansion of NATO. More countries actually saying, we'd better join NATO now before he annexes or attacks us. But also in Ukraine, the resilience and resolve of, of, of citizens, uh, activists and uh, uh, the, the military and the government is massive. Putin has created a greater level of Ukrainian national identity and unity than uh, they say has existed for for a very long time. There is a determination to fight. So this will not end well for anyone uh, if Russia crosses the border because there will be very bloody uh, battles and, and it will take a very long time with uh, Ukraine uh, arming uh, citizens so they can act in self-defense and take action for as long as necessary um this is this could be um uh, you know a very horrible situation that russia cannot extricate from 
in any way that, that does Putin or, or Russia any credit. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Well, let's get more on uh, what's dominating the world of Westminster this morning. We're joined by Bloomberg reporter James Walcott. James, uh, thanks so much for joining us in the studio today. Now, these um, allegations of uh, Islamophobia in the Conservative Party, how much of a, of a surprise will this be uh, to, to, to the party? And, and, and what, are they, what are they doing about it? Yeah, I mean, for listeners who sort of weren't aware, um, a former transport minister, Nusrat Ghani, came out over the weekend and said she felt like she had been told to leave her role because her colleagues felt uncomfortable with her idea of being Muslim, a Muslim woman in government. And, I mean, if Johnson wasn't already facing all these issues with party, get this is sort of set, yes, on the bombshell. I'm trying to find better words than bombshells because it seems like there's one every week. Um, but this kind of thing, in a very pivotal moment for Johnson's premiership, it unsettles everything even more for him because it raises questions about party management. But it hasn't come out of nowhere, like you say. Um, in the 2019 leadership election, Sajid Javid, um, and also a Muslim cabinet secretary, um, said at the time that he wanted an inquiry and asked for the other parties, sort of um, people running for candidates to be party leader, to commit to that as well. Um, and then you also have Baroness Farsi, so a peer of the Tunisian party, has been talking about issues around Islamophobia the entire time. It's worth bringing up that the only political party that has ever had a Equality and Human Rights Commission sort of into any kind of form of prejudice or discrimination is the Labour Party for anti-Semitism during Jeremy Corbyn. So it is worth saying just a bit of balance that like this isn't sort of an isolated issue. There are issues everywhere. But this sort of problem around sort of discrimination in politics has been brewing for a long time. Yeah, uh, a, a great reckoning. It does uh, feel like we're getting to that point, perhaps. Brexit back on the menu too, though, uh, James, in terms of Liz Truss in Brussels now. Mm, she's back there for another talk with Maros Sefcovic. Um, I feel like I'm doing my 2016 best hits. Um, new new contender. Um, I think it's her f- second time in person meeting uh, her European counterpart. They'll be talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's so interesting as well. It's just worth mentioning that EU foreign ministers are down in Brussels on the same day to be discussing Ukraine. Mm. So meanwhile, you have at the same point, the 20, EU 27 foreign ministers, Liz Truss, our representative there to talk about Brexit in a sort of real sort of visual metaphor for how the UK is having this separate issue while the same way through. 
Yeah, she finished her uh, important and well-timed trip to uh, Australia. Uh, uh, just uh, briefly, talk to us about the uh, the uh, energy energy price picture. So it's seventh of February. We're expecting uh, Ofgem to tell us how much bills are going to go up by. What what is the government planning? We we don't know yet. But what, what, what is, what's the speculation? Mm, so it's one of those interesting things where. Between, I mean, Ukraine, as you guys were talking about, this massive story, and then as well as that, we have Partygate, as well as that, we have Islamophobia, you start to get lost with all the other sort of government business that's going on. Now, it's reported that ahead of Ofgem announcing how far prices will go up in the April, um, the government had been in talks for a long time with energy companies about what they can do to ease the burden on suppliers. And a lot of sort of issues have been mooted. It could be a subsidy, it could be a cut to sort of value added tax for consumers. Um, but Johnson and Sunak were reportedly supposed have had a crisis talk last Friday to sort of settle the issue once and for all and get it sorted. It did not happen because of Partygate. So in the next week or two, they are expected to have that meeting they should have had last week. And this is another issue of how cost of living is a massive issue for Tory MPs, one of the mm. things they really want Johnson to address. But Johnson's own scandals are pushing the issue off the agenda. And one thing I'm really watching now is if it's going to come up that back in 2018, Johnson made an infamous column where he compared uh, Muslim women wearing burqas to letterboxes and bank robbers. And I wonder if now this sort of thing is going to rise back up the news agenda yet again delaying all that government business. James, thank you so much for being with us. That is Bloomberg's reporter James Wilcock there on the latest from Westminster. Well, the idea of the pressure on households and energy prices uh, is directly linked to the next story in terms of NATO allies putting forces on standby and dispatching ships and fighter jets to bolster Eastern European defences because of tensions rising over Russia's military build-up around Ukraine. That's according to the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg in a statement today. Yeah, Russian troops have amassed at the border near Ukraine, and despite Moscow's insistence to the contrary, there are concerns uh, of a report that Mo- of, about Moscow's annexation of Crimea in 2014, and Britain's accusation that Russia is plotting to install a pro-Kremlin uh, government in Ukraine. That's been uh, roundly rejected by Moscow. Well, let's discuss this all now with uh, Tony Brenton. He's former British ambassador to Russia uh, from 2004 to 2008. Uh, Tony, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Now, uh, Moscow seems seems uh, pretty unfazed by all that the West uh, has been threatening uh, so far. Do you think we've we, we've said anything so far which concerns Putin? Well, I don't. Well, it depends a lot on what Putin is intent on doing. If he's intent on going to war, then more or less nothing we say will um, will affect his his determination. But I'm pretty sure that what he's doing is sending a pretty strong signal to us that he wants to talk to us about the things which they're concerned about, the expansion of NATO and in particular the inclusion of Ukraine in NATO. I don't suppose he feels particularly threatened by the the sanctions everybody's been talking about since we've already got lots of sanctions on Russia, none of which have had any effect. Um, If, however, he can get a conversation going about his concerns, and it seems to be—it seems to me that there's actually no reason why we shouldn't negotiate ourselves out of the cul-de-sac we seem to be down at the moment. And what about this list of of, of Russian demands? Because it, it's quite understandable that Russia doesn't want, uh, you know, its massive, uh, well, until recently friend, uh, Ukraine, uh, you know, NATO coming right up on its on its doorstep. But NATO can't pledge never to allow uh, no, that's Ukraine right. to join. Surely. <laughs> That's absolutely right. I mean, Putin's demands, Russia's demands, are obviously unacceptable as they stand. And and we're not going to commit ourselves never to have Ukraine as a member of NATO. Um, But the the reality is that Ukraine is not going to join NATO for a long time anyway. They've got a civil war going on in in, in their east. They've got a 
uh, a territorial dispute with Russia in the south. That's going to take decades to sort out. So what we can do, what the West can do, what the US can do, is make some sort of statement to that effect. And I suspect that that will probably, well, I don't know, but I hope that you find the right language and that will be enough for the Russians. Conversely, the Russians are demanding a, a legally binding um, commitment by the West. The West can't possibly do that because that requires um, ratification by the Senate in the US and the Senate just doesn't do that sort of thing. So there's a deal to be done there. And there's quite encouraging signs from the, the meeting between Tony Blinken and Sergei Lavrov on Friday that mm. quietly they're beginning to talk about what sort of language might be acceptable to both sides. Well, what about unity, though, within Europe on this front? I mean, and, and the fact that the Navy head in Germany had to quit after those remarks that were seen as being very favourable to Russia. I mean, how compromised is Germany here or reliant on Russia, friendly towards Russia? I mean, that is quite a key issue for Europe now. Well, it is. I mean, there's a fair spread of views with the Germans at the soft end and actually us, the UK, at the very hard end. Um, but it, really what's going on in Europe is the secondary issue. This is down to uh, hard-headed negotiations, frankly, between them, the Americans and the Russians. If they can find an agreed position, we will all tamely fall in behind the Americans. But you think there is a real chance of a, of a deal being done here. You don't think that Putin is determined to, to invade? Well, as I say, the, the big... The really big question here is whether Putin is genuinely determined to go to war, in which case nothing will stop him. And he's got a lot of troops there, and he could no doubt make a, make a lot of progress. And that would be disastrous. I think he'd probably win in the, in the, in the, initial, in the, in the initial steps. Um, but then, then there would be a whole hail of new sanctions, which would do quite a lot of damage. And at that point, our relations with Russia, a nuclear power on our continent, sink into the absolute freezer. And we were looking at a very dangerous and unpredictable um, prospect from there, then on. Having said that, in the meantime, Russia's weaponizing, it would seem, its energy supplies to Europe. Well, I'm not sure that's true. I mean, the, mm. Russians, I mean, the Russians see it as a very big interest for them as being seen as a reliable supplier of gas to their biggest external market, which is Western Europe. They have, throughout all of the arguments and squabbles over the last 30 years, 40 years, been, been a reliable supplier, and I think they're pretty intent on continuing to do that, which is not to say it may be possible. We get into a war, they get into a war with Ukraine, then the Ukrainians will be very tempted to, to cut off Russian gas, which, of course, flows through their pipes. Mm -hmm. So there are dangers to gas supply there, but I don't, I don't think the Russians um, are, 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 are the real threat. And, and what about the sanctions we have in place so far? They don't seem to have had a, a great deal of effect. Are, are there any more serious ones? What about cutting off the, uh, the access to, to SWIFT to the, the, pay, the payment system? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a longish list. I mean, Biden has referred to them as sanctions like you've never seen before. And there's talk of preventing Westerners holding Russian debt, of sanctions mm. on, 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 on Russian banks, and so on and so forth. And indeed, the exclusion of Russia from SWIFT, although there seems to be rather limited US, uh, European support for that mm. particular action. Yes, there are all sorts of possibilities there that the, the West hasn't yet deployed and could. Yes, they would be painful for the Russian economy if they were deployed. But the attitude in Russia, well, let me put it this way. If, a, if, a, if an official went to Putin and said, sir, the West are threatening various economic sanctions if you do something with regard to Ukraine, that official is likely to find himself counting paperclips in Siberia for the rest of his career. <laughs> uh, the, the Kremlin, Putin, cares much more about Russian national security than they do about the economic welfare of their population. 
Jupiter are sort of sparser. Mm. And that's, okay. that's, that's a fact we have to adjust ourselves to. So, so yes, the sanction, sorry, the sanctions threat is there. Yes, it will be damaging. But I don't think it would ultimately be decisive as the Russians look at their options. Okay, so prepared to take the pain, essentially. Well, what about UK foreign policy, just briefly? This idea that the UK can try to sort of go it alone here? Any credence? What's the the threat there? No, I I don't. Well, we're not going to go it alone. I mean, we are actually very firmly aligned with the United States. We are well ahead of other European partners in the sense that we're supplying weapons to Ukraine, which the Americans are, and I think very few other people are. In our rhetoric, we've been very, very much aligned with the United States. But finally, we're not going to go to war with Russia uh, over Ukraine if the Americans aren't. And the Americans aren't. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.